and welcome back or welcome to the On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined by my good friend and colleague, John Marcus. John, another day, another podcast. Oh, I'm super excited about this one. This one is giving the people what they want. It is juicy. Oh, mm. it's going to be delicious. All right. John, as always, hyping it up, but I think this one is definitely going to fulfill that hype because we're going to give you some traditional stuff, but more importantly, some innovative stuff on how to tackle some problems. Before we get there, though, if you want more innovative work, if you want others to bounce ideas off on... If you you want a community of like-minded, open-seeking People on the path of excellence. Where do you got to go, Stephen? You know, that's a hard thing. That is a hard thing to figure out because that community, it's hard to put together. But guess it's what? It's hard we've, to find, man. Oh, I tell you what. We've done it. Scholar Clubhouse. Scholar Clubhouse. Get on board. John and I are, are adding value to that every day. We're adding insight. I just put up, you know, John, I, I love talking about this because I love... Talking about what we added in there. You know, I came across this Lydiard lecture. It's just nine minutes, right? Oh, yeah. I know. You, you sent it to me. Nine yeah. minutes long. I send it to John. I'm like, this is gold. This is Lydiard from, I think, the, you know, the, the 80s or 90s talking about how he took a marathoner from 215 who was stuck down to 212, not by increasing volume. Yes, this is Lydiard, but saying we have to improve his mechanics and get his speed back speed better that is the block and then he he went down to 212 yeah shared that you know i shared it with john and i said forget just john this (laughs) needs to go to scholar clubhouse this is gold well that's the beauty of it right is now like we can nerd out with other nerds and to everyone's benefit rather than just you and me send and danny mackie like send text messages back and forth this is great (laughs) that's right so if you want to you want to get on board join the clubhouse Join the Scholar Program. Not only do you get the Clubhouse with interaction and John and I sharing stuff, but you get bundles and bundles of courses aimed at everything from Canova to cross-country to middle-distance training to strength training to the science of running, a course we created based on my book. So if you want to go in-depth on any of it, join join the program. Plus, we'll be starting up soon here in the Clubhouse real-time courses. I've been working on the kind of five-tier training system um, made famous by Peter Coe, used by Adam States, um, Devin Martin, and before that, Joe Vigil, and also used by Vin Lanana. And this is a really fun and interesting uh, and originated by, I think, by Frank Horwell, correct me if I'm wrong, Stephen. Um, but this is a real, real-time real course. So what will be happening is I'll upload you know, something and let scholars kind of ask questions, talk about it for a week. Think of it like a weekly lecture where you actually have a community coming in and being able to pepper with questions and some, in some ways drive the direction of the course too, because it's real response in real time rather than Steve and I just making a syllabus and lecturing online and just going with it. So I think this is going to be really powerful. We've had like 20 new members sign up in the last week alone. So this is going to be a lot of fun. I'm really excited to roll this out here in the next couple of weeks. All right. Let's get on board. So let's go into this week's topic. Innovative training methods that can take your preparation to the next level. 
Or basically anything I tweet on Twitter that gets a lot of pushback. <laughs> We're not going to go there. We're not going to go to John's Twitter quick show. Anyways, let's let's. So this this came this came about about this topic by a conversation, John. So let's use that to set the stage. You were talking about going back, reading the work of famed high school coach, celebrated high school coach Joe Newton, who coached at York High School for decades upon decades and won so many state championships and had teams that were you know the top in the nation i remember right before or during our era it was the don sage show running four minutes in the mile for for york high school so long tradition of success so why don't we set the stage with what you you know discovered or you know re you know hit in the memory there yeah i I actually um tweeted out like that Joe Newton's probably one of the more underrated coaches of the modern era in America. And, you know, again, a little pushback there. And I don't think it was to say uh, his the appreciation for his achievements is underrated. It's how he went about to actually get those achievements from those athletes. So in a, the hard to find but worth finding, running to the top of the mountain book that uh, Joe wrote uh, in 1988, he outlines a whole season of cross-country training for his 1987 um, cross-country team. And in it, there, it, it's a beautiful thing of the concepts and principles of that time being synthesized and applied to the benefit of the athletes. So one thing that starts, hits you right away is they're running 150 miles a week in the summer. 150 miles a week in the summer. Yes, friends. And these are just high school boys, right? Juniors, seniors, sophomores. But also the other thing that's super interesting is we have to remember Joe Newton was a close confidant and friend of Peter Coe and Seb Coe. And one of the things he took away from them was, and he says it like that I learned from uh, Peter Coe was, you have to run fast every day to be fast. Racing's fast, so you got to train fast to be fast. And what Joe did was he took the best ideas of the time. So this was like linear based ideas of steady states, volumes, aerobic capacity, but also the emerging ideas from uh, Peter Coe of comprehensive or total body conditioning, and also uh, which includes weight training, circuit training, and also daily speed work, and put it all together in one package for his team. And what was a um, before even they would do a workout. They had kind of like, I guess you could say a, a pre-workout, if you want to call it a warm-up, and then a post-workout um, segment, if you want to call, call it a cool-down. But let's go through what that is real quick. So the pre-workout would be they would run for about 45 minutes to maintain the aerobic capacity. Then they would do 6 by 100 to kind of, you know, activate wake-up speed. Then they do some calisthenics and then maybe some more 6 by 100 strides. Do the main workout. And for Joe, his cycle was pretty simple. Uh, on Mondays, long intervals, mile repeats, then followed the next the next day by short intervals, 400s. Uh, then an interrupted run on Wednesday, which was a medium long run interrupted um, after five minutes or for five minute segments in the following order: 45 minutes of running, 
stop, hang out for five minutes. 30 minutes of running, stop, hang out for five minutes. 15 to 30 more minutes of running, that's the day. Then there would be a either a race or a medium length interval workout. So hard 800s, right? Um, and then a fartlek on the weekend. And then on Sunday, a traditional uh, continuous long run of 15 miles on your own. But before every workout, they would do that warm-up protocol. They do the workout. And then afterwards, every workout, 300 meters all out. So running to practice and mimic the sprint finish when tired. Then anywhere from 10 to 24 by 100 fast when tired. Then they would do what he called 30-30-30, which is a, a little mini circuit training. So circuit training. And then he would have them um, cool down for about two to three miles. And one of the key things to take away from Joe is he was a big proponent also of weight training. Um, here on page 336 of Running to the Top of the Mountain, he says, weight training with its rapid dividends in strength, circuitory improvement, and endurance is a must for the time-limited high school coaches. So everything is there. And it's really interesting. He put the York High School cross-country team through this quote-unquote grueling schedule, but it was not necessarily grueling. It's just a lot of hard work, and they ran really fast. And just a lot of really interesting principles to unpack there about why it's so successful. And that's what I'm saying why he's underrated is I don't see people applying those principles of let's run. Okay, we're going to run fast every day. So we're going to do it in a fresh state with these hundreds before the workout. We're also going to do it in a fatigue state post-workout with um, these hundreds and also an all out or all you got, you know, Ron Warhurst style type 400. And we're going to rehearse that skill and seeing it more as a skill to rehearse on a daily basis to get the athlete comfortable with that versus saying, oh, it's this big metabolic stress and this thing that doesn't make the easy days easy. And oh my gosh, like we're going to wear people out by asking them to do, you know, 60 seconds of faster pace running every day. And I think, you know, Joe astutely found and then re got reinforced via his practice and um, achievements that of how successful this approach could be. You know, it's interesting because Newton is, is again, uh, very much known for his, his volume, right? I mean, when I was in high school and again, Don Sage at the very beginning of my high school career and all these other stuff is it was like the volume, the volume, volume, which makes sense. But on the other side, the flip side is like, as you mentioned there, he's heavily in, influenced by Peter Coe, you know, Seb Coe, if I'm remembering correctly, came over and trained there for a, a brief period. And yeah, uh, about two weeks before, I think, the uh, LA Olympics. Yep, yep. So, like, which is interesting because you have this guy known for high volume, then training and being influenced and having, you know, obviously a friendship and, and all that with Peter Coe, who, who if you read Peter Coe's book with uh, David Martin, I believe it is, um, better training for distance runners it's it's you know very you know yes checks the box of the endurance side but very speed um intensity and weightlifting and the other other focused stuff so it's in, it's interesting there because like to me if we just step back you have a coach who instead of being like the system guy of like well i'm gonna call myself high volume or high intensity 
he seems to have just melded and taken what worked for him and his program of the different kind of philosophies and said, you know what, this is what we're going to do. You know, this is what sticks. And what I hope to unpack is not just Newton in, in this podcast, but there's a bunch of different things that are great examples of getting a stimulus, a training stimulus that differs from let's say let's say the traditional way that we do things. So if we're saying the traditional, if you go to high, just about any high school or college program, you'll see what are you going to see? You're going to see some people doing some short, fast intervals every once in a while, some medium length intervals, some long intervals some tempo or threshold stuff and, and a long run and then a bunch of easy runs in between. Right. Right. And Oh, go ahead, Steve. Yeah. I was just going to drive this home, but I think the point, you know, the interesting thing is even there, you look at Newton and he has this like medium long run, this specially adjusted for high school kids to allow them to do it. This 30, what do you say? 35, 35, 30, and then 15 to 30. 45 30 15 with with five minute breaks in between he's not saying like you often get like oh my gosh you're standing at a stoplight your heart rate's going down like we're wasting this aerobic stimulus he's saying you know what you just ran 45 minutes i'm gonna give you a five minute break and then we're gonna go 30 then i'm gonna give you another five minute break and then we're gonna go 15 and guess what over the you know you're gonna get what is that uh 90 minutes of running which is a good medium long run but we got breaks in there so it's going to be all right, which is an interesting approach. Well, it's, it's, I love it because what happens when we go with, you know, remember it's, we are always trying to graduate towards density of training, right? However, when you have people who might not have the strength, and I'm talking about the physical strength, the mental strength and the um, metabolic strength to endure successfully without like chronic breakdown of form and, and uh, running mechanics, 90 straight minutes of running because you're supposed to and need to get this steady state aerobic stimulus in to, you know, quote unquote, be a good runner. It's at a cost benefit, you know, uh, analysis here. Like, yeah, they're going 90 minutes, but how are they going for 90 minutes? And what Joe astutely realized was like, yeah, they're going to be under a little fatigue. It's the mid midweek long run. So I don't need to like ask them just to go straight 90 minutes and make it also for a high school kid probably really boring and have them kind of, um, you know, sandbag it. Instead, I'll say, hey, go for 45 minutes, come back. Probably what happened, I would imagine, and this is pure conjecture, they come back, you know, to school, check in with the coach, you know, the coach would say, okay, hey, yeah, how you doing? Maybe shuffle them around in a group. Hey, you should run a little slower. Hey, you can run a little faster. But it was a phenomenal way to kind of keep that pulse on the athlete on a moment to moment basis or a period to period basis in a training session, rather than just saying, all right, go out for 90 minutes. And I'll see you later type uh, type way. So it accomplishes a couple things. And it's a really intelligent application of the principle and trying to capture that development that you wanted without necessarily doing it in the most direct um, conventional manner. Yeah. You know, another thing, and I think about this a lot in terms of what we did in high school too, is, you know, I, I know Illinois, where York is, isn't Houston, but their summers get pretty hot and humid, you know? And what it also does is it allows you to get that that length where you also have this, like, kind of, okay, I can manage it. Okay, I can deal with the heat, humidity that we have to face, 
um, and all that good stuff. I mean, whenever in high school, whenever we would do longer tempo runs for longer steady runs, like we'd always break, almost always break it up where you just have, and it wasn't like, it was like, hey, we're going to do 10 miles steady today, but it could be like five miles and five miles or even on our easy runs, like we'd have this like three mile loop in the park where we'd go three miles, stop, get some water for a minute or two, and then, you know, regroup, you know, maybe grit it, get a straggler back in, in the, in the run for the next three miles. And you don't think about it too much, but I think it's a way, especially in high school to allow you to get the volume without the kind of mental drudgery. And then also like, keep the quality up a bit because you're only focusing three miles, four miles, five miles, whatever it is at the time, then you got a little break to recover and you're going to be all right. Versus for many high schoolers, if I go tell you to run 90 minutes straight, the last, once we get past, you know, 50, 60 minutes, it just starts turning into a survival slog, you know? Yeah, it's a great way to kind of chunk it, right? And we know this from um, motivational psychology and also performance psychology. If you can chunk things into sections and just focus on what you have to do right now and nothing else, you get more out of that moment. So if it's just, hey, run six to seven miles and just focus on that and then go ahead and run five to six miles and focus on that and then run three miles, plus two, the ask is declining in duration and, you know, maybe perhaps, too, the pace is ratcheting up as well, right? Because you're getting a little recovery period. And it also fits in well with actually Joe's overall philosophy, which um, you can see in the training of Jim White, a 407 high school miler, that details out in um, another part of the running to the top of the mountain book, where every day the first activity was a 45-minute continual run, right? 45 minutes of running. That was the quote unquote first part of any workout. So it's also good consistency throughout the course of the week. So, and then they're like, oh, all I have to do is then after my normalized 45 minutes of running is now 30 minutes and 15 minutes. That's pretty simple and easy. You know, I'll read real quick too, like uh, a week out of uh, Jim White's training the 407 miler that uh, Joe details in his book. And you got to remember, so this is like week 19, mid-May, when they're coming into uh, Illinois sectionals time. So every day for that whole week, the training starts off with a 45-minute continual run, calisthenics, and then 10 times 100. And then it concludes every day that week with 1 times 300, that handicap, that fast one, 10 times 100 with 15 seconds standing. So Joe was also a big believer in density, right? So he always was trying to keep the recoveries very short to keep the training very specific to the racing activity where there's no timeouts. And then that follows with, uh, concludes with a two-mile jog. So on Monday, the heart of the workout after that quote-unquote pre-workout and post-workout consistent activity was 8 times 300 with... 100 meter jog, white ran them all in 44. Tuesday, it was 12 times 150, white ran them all with a with 150 meter jog back, white ran them all in 17 seconds. Wednesday, it was six times 400 on one minute interval or one minute recoveries, 
White ran them all in 62 seconds. Thursday, it was 10 times 100. Two sets of that. Two sets of 10 times 100. White ran them all in 14 to 13 seconds. Friday, the day before sectionals, was 6 times 200. Light with 200 jog. So, you know, for Joe, that's actually a lot of recovery. And White ran them all in 32 to 31. Then on Saturday, at the sectional meet, White runs the 3200 in 906, the 800 in 154, the 1600 in 416, and a 4x4 relay split in 49 flat. Sunday, hour and a half continuous run. That's just a quote-unquote, you could say, peaking training week. And you see that, right? You see medium-length interval 300s, short intervals the following Tuesday 150s, quote-unquote, longer relative intervals, 400s, and then it kind of tapers off two sets of 10 times 100 and the classic 6 times 200 meter kind of like pre-race workout. But remember, that whole week happening before and after those bouts, 45 minutes running, calisthenics 10 times 100, followed by concluding with 1 times 300 fast, 10 times 100 fast on 15 seconds stand, and then two mile cooldown. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, but this is like the hard, easy principle. You know, I was telling Steve, like after going back and reading about it, like a lot of times we apply the hard, easy principle, I mean, do something hard to, or do a day hard, do a day easy, right? But also it can mean is, you know, train in a way that what was once hard is easy. And this is where adaptation takes place, right? Like to the normal person who's not accommodated to this, that's a lot of stimulus. But you know, from a Bonderchuk perspective, a neurological perspective, especially with the speedier stuff, it makes perfect sense because speed is a very transient skill that needs, you know, it's a neuromuscular motor learning thing. And it needs a lot of rehearsal to be refined and to create smoothness, kind of like playing the piano, right? The 10,000 hour rule, we know that everything was chunked in about the, you know, uh, the violinists and pianists that they originally studied. They worked in like bouts of 90 minute segments really focused in uh, specifically, and then took long breaks um, interspersing it, right? So they got a lot out of the 90 uh, seconds, uh, 90 minute segments versus the not so proficient violinists and pianists that Erickson originally studied. They were a little bit, um, you know, less deliberate and less focused with their um, practice and would do longer blocks, but less, um, uh, quality within those longer blocks. And so, and they get kind of more distracted and a little bit more, um, you know, off course versus here, it's very, you know, he's, what Joe's trying to do is hit every single, um, thing in kind of the training cookie jar, so to speak, but he does it in a way that chunks it right. Chunk, 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 chunk. And it, it, it's also very, it's, it's predictable, but it's varied enough to kind of keep people's attention, which again, another really intelligent training principle. Yeah. You know, I think, I think the, what's interesting here. Okay. Let's step back a little bit. What's interesting here is I think you're hitting on a different, a couple different things is that we, you know, we see these rules hard easy principle the 80 20 rule all this stuff and in general these rules are good but what happens is we often 
take them to the extreme. Or okay. I would say we take them, we interpret them in a very shallow way. And then we hold that as the only interpretation. Yeah. So let me, let me do this. Let me do this. Let's, let's tie some stuff together. Let me read you a sample training plan that was put together by Renato Canova that we have in our, our uh, scholar running scholar program course. Oh, it's, I already know it's going to be good. All right. So this is a training plan. It's just a six-week training plan for uh, you know getting ready for 1,500 meters okay, for an athlete. Let me just read you. I'm just going to pull out one week. Okay, we went through the we went through the Newton week. Let's go through the um, the Canova week. Okay, Monday, hour and a half easy plus exercises. What are exercises? Six times. 10 squat jumps, 6 times 30 meter bounding, 10 long jumps from standing, 10 by 30 meter heels to butt, 10 by 30 seconds skipping. Okay. So 90 minutes plus strength circuit. Tuesday, 7 by 1200, 2 minutes recovery plus 40 minutes easy. Okay. We'll call that a hard day. Wednesday, hour easy plus Two times seven by 80 meter sprint uphill plus four minutes fast continuous run. All right, we've got some more work, right? What is it? Thursday, one hour easy plus exercise B. What is exercise B? Circuit, repeat three times. 40 abdominals, 40 hip rotations, 30 mobilization hips, 40 dorsal flexions, 40 sagittal splits. Okay, so easy plus a circuit. Friday, 20-minute warm-up plus 10K at 305 kilometers plus 30 minutes easy plus stretching, flexibility, mobility. Okay, steady, right? Threshold. Saturday, short tests on track. 2 by 80, 100, 120, 150, 200, 250 at 95% of max speed. Recovery among tests, three to four minutes. Recovery among sets, six to eight minutes. Sunday, rest. (laughs) So why do I read that out? Because John just mentioned the hard-easy principle. And our modern interpretation of hard-easy is often easy day, hard day, easy day, hard day. Easy day, two, or sorry, hard days, two easy days of just what is easy mileage. And what I love that Newton and Canova get to, and again, this Canova example is for 1500 meter getting ready. Okay. But I love what these examples get to is there's a whole heck of a lot of nuance between going out for an easy recovery jog and doing an all out race or all-out workout that is between and your easy days like although we like to say hard days hard easy days easy which is again another good principle over time both your hard and easy days and the density within that week can increase i mean again using this canova week we've got 1200s one day and then 1480 meter sprints like uphill 
I know it's only 80 meters, but 1480 meter sprints uphill is a hell of a neurological like speed stimulus. And then you come back two days later and you do a 10 kilometers at, let's say, threshold. And then the next day you do two by 80, 100, 120, 150, 200, 250 at 95% max with eight minutes recovery between sets. So I think we're, we're getting at here is don't get locked into like these rules of thumb. If you've developed the capacities to go beyond that or the capacity to add work in there. And I, I'll give one more example that is, you know, we've given Newton, we've given Canova, but I think this is important is if you look at Alan Webb, which, mm. you know, we're going to go in depth on again. And oh, we will program. go very in depth. <laughs> I, we have, I've been studying the shit out of this one, ladies and gentlemen. But if you, if you look at his easy days, you know, I'll never forget. Uh, I've told this story before, but I think it's worth repeating the first week that I trained with Alan Webb ever was a training camp. You know, I moved to Virginia. We drove down with Alan Moses Joseph, who's Olympian, met Kevin Sullivan, obviously Canadian Olympian. And we did a training camp in Florida. And up to that point, I was running about a hundred miles a week to, you know, in prep. Rasco said, Hey, try to run 60, 70 this week. I'm like, Oh, this is cake. I got this. And the first easy day, like literally we were, we were gone from like 7.30 in the morning and, until like 1 p.m., 1.30. That's when our easy day finished. And I'm just like, holy hell, what, what, what did we all just do? And it was, you know, this, it was, you know, let's do this pre-warm up and then this run and then we're going to go through this circuit and then we're going to go to drive to the track and we're going to do 200, 150, 120 with some plyos and then do this strength training stuff and general strength. And I kid you not, like it's one we're driving home and like we stop by the grocery store and just grab a bunch of stuff to eat because we're all, I especially am just exhausted. And I remember... I was like, oh, I, it's an easy day. I'll double. I did not double. Like, I sat in bed. <laughs> and I was done. Well, and, like, when Lindsay Gallo joined the group, right? And you guys go through the, like, the workup, the workout warm-up. And she's like, that's the warm-up? Yes. Like, the <laughs> workout, workout now? <laughs> she, she's like, I think I'm just going to show up. I remember this conversation. And Lindsay, Lindsay was great. I mean, she was a NCAA champion, I believe. 405, 1500 runner type for women excellent but she joined and i remember we'd go through this pre-warm-up that took like again 45 minutes before we started the actual warm-up which the actual warm-up included a three-mile run and i remember her just getting there and she's like we go through the pre-warm-up and she's like now we're starting the the actual warm-up and she's like i'll tell you what guys next workout i'm gonna show up 45 minutes late skip the pre-warm-up and I'll just start with the actual warm up. <laughs> and the the point there is so this is it's tough. And this is what this podcast is: whether it's the warm up, whether it's the long run, whether it's you know what you include in the the workout. What we're trying to do is expand your horizon beyond beyond just the simple like show up, get your warm up in, 
you know, do your workout, get done. Next day, show up, do your run, get done. And sometimes that's great and what's needed. And a lot of times that's that's what's needed. But you also need to expand your horizon and give and see that there are more options out there or more tools in the toolbox for you to pull out, you know, where you say, you know what, we're not going to do a medium long run. We're going to do a 45, 30, 15, and we'll be good. And I guarantee you, I know nothing about this 40, 5, 30, and 15, but I guarantee you, because we do similar things in high school every once in a while, that last 15 minutes was going to be the fastest because you're like, oh my God, we got 15 minutes. I had a five minutes rest. Like, let's get this done. And like, we're going to run to the barn. Like we've only got this two mile loop or whatever it is, you know, a little longer. Like, let's just get this done. I don't have to do the 45 minute. And if you think about you know, the purpose of a recovery run or is really easy runs, remember it's, it's supposed to be a massage. It's supposed to flush out a lot of the metabolic, um, you know, toxin substrates that accumulated from the previous day or sessions training, right? And I always remind people like the true easy part of easy run, sh- you should get done with it and feel like you just stepped out from a massage, a relaxing massage, right? And if you are breaking this thing up into chunks, ideally that first 45 minutes, yeah, you might be a little, have that kind of like uh, metabolic uh, residual hangover from the previous couple days of training or whatever, but then it starts to flush out. And that 30 minutes, okay, it really starts to flush out. And then you actually feel a lot better and can go run to the barn for that last 15 minutes. The thing is, is like what we do, I feel like we tend to have very uh, concrete, non-malleable concepts in our head about what's possible and not possible in training. But the law of adaptation, the biological principle, you know, is what we are all striving and playing with here. And it's amazing what the human body organism can adapt to if uh, systematically, progressively exposed to over time. We have to remember the law of accommodation, right? You will accommodate. Your body will make adaptations to accommodate so that what was once a stressor will no longer be a homeostatic disruption. So you can do this with no problem. Think about your easy run paces, right? If you're coming off the couch, an easy run at seven minute pace for 45 minutes is a highly stressful event for someone who is, you know, getting ready for, uh, you know, a, a really solid 10K performance at a national class level. It's nothing. It's, it, it is no homeostatic disruption. And we have to go back to what creates that disruption, right? It's a depletion of metabolic or biochemical substrates. It's that um, uh, fitness gain but also that fatigue presence that might happen. And it's how long your body needs to restore from that. If you are systematically practicing these activities, like Alan did, um, like Joe White and the York High School kids did, those activities then no longer become homeostatic disruptions. So you can technically, quote unquote, run fast every day because it doesn't disrupt the system because you have rehearsed and you've normalized, you stabilized that you're not. And when people think about intensity or running fast, I think they, a lot of times people gravitate towards killer workouts with killer volumes, crazy hit training things that people are ill prepared to handle. And that's the beauty of progressive overload is you're just trying to stress the system just a little with your quote unquote workout days to spur that super compensatory adaptation. And it's, but it's progressive. It's just a little, just a little, just a little, and it compounds over time, right? 
and you see this manifest with this type of training is that these things are non-disturbances. And that's really what you have to view and think about in training is what are the skills I'm trying to rehearse? What And then this gets to actually sports-specific skill acquisition. And there's a really interesting study that shows how and why cycling is not good cross-training for running. And the main reason is, you know, that the, the paper cites is because of the uh, lengthening in the joint angles in the stroke of a, uh, of a, a bicycle spin in the, uh, the cycling stroke is not similar to that of a running stroke, right? The quads do not lengthen as much in a cycling um, stroke as they do in a running stride. And it's the same principle too. Your easy runs are actually not really good cross training for, as, um, for say your fast pace running if you're a miler. So if you're saying you're doing a lot of mileage at eight minute pace and you're trying to run sub five minutes, what's happening is your joint angles and that's, that specificity neurologically doesn't have a whole lot of transfer. Now there is transfer for say more metabolic things like aerobic conditioning, um, you know, metabolism, um, fueling substrates, all that kind of good stuff. Yes. But it's also a cost benefit analysis. So this is why like it makes sense to practice the sport specific skill frequently as like Bondarchuk found out, we call it the competitive exercise. Right. And so if you do strides every day, if you're a miler, if you do 10 K pace stuff every day, if you're a 10 K runner, even just a little bit, you get the neurological efficacy and refinement and where you're not just punching the clock to get the volume in because you're going to be magically rewarded, like, you know, leveled up fitness, but your, your brain, you're actually really intently working on how you're holding your body, how you're moving, how you're responding off the ground. There's a lot more sophistication in the skill specific exercise that you're working on versus just forcing your body to get the time or willing your body to get the time and the volume. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think that's the, the key there is you're not, it's not about forcing it. It's about figuring out how to how to make you know sure you're getting the appropriate adaptations and the appropriate you know um, uh, appropriate amount at at the right time, and I think that's where it's like you know you see some of these innovative training methods, or you see like oh my gosh they're doing this or they're adding this, and what they're trying to do is figure out what's the how do I balance all these things and get these things in there. So, you know, you have these hundred meter strides as, or these hundred meter sprints as, as Newton does. You have these days where you have hill sprints as Canova popularized. Like they're all just trying to figure out how do I get the stimulus where I need it? And then when I don't need the stimulus, like how do I, how do I structure these easy days where I'm recovering, getting this, this flush, but I think what the genius of some of these coaches realize is that you can re- recover metabolically while working on something else. Yeah. And and that's also, we also got to remember too, with training is there's three different types of loads, right? There's the stimulating training load, which is a magnitude of load that's beyond your current scope and capacity. There's the retaining, which is within kind of, the neutral zone, so to speak, or within that homeostatic range. So you're just working on that skill to retain it. And then there's the detraining, right? Where either it's way too much or way too little, and it creates a decrease in ability and performance. So when you don't do anything, that's detraining. 
period. End of story. You're not practicing it. When you're doing something just a little bit beyond your current scope of ability, that's stimulating. That's tended to be what we think about workouts. But if you follow the hard, easy principle of making what was once hard easy, well, yeah, in the beginning, doing six by 100 in a 45-minute run in calisthenics before you start a workout or your pre-workout warm-up, warm-up, that can be stimulating enough because you're not accommodated to it. But over time, through the beauty of progressive adaptation, you become accommodated. And you notice Joe Newton didn't change it, right? So like you can, you know, alter training loads in two ways, quantitative or qualitative. You can qualitative, you change the exercise completely. Quantitative, you change the, the, the load in some way, either by magnitude of volume or, and or magnitude of intensity. But he'd never changed those things. The only thing that was really variable was the kind of speed you were running at. But it was such a short, brief period. The 300s, you're like, just go as fast as you can go tired. Like, it doesn't matter. You don't need to run faster every day. It's not, you know, a big, um, you know, crisis if you run three seconds slower on this 300 than you did the previous day because we just did five by miles hard. Like, just do it to normalize the sensation, right? Which is pretty um, intelligent. But it was done in from a, a retaining, a retention um, f- f- uh, point of view versus a, Oh, and I think this is the thing we also have to remember too as coaches and athletes is not everything that's beyond the scope of really easy, relaxed is stimulating. When you hear someone like when I, you know, will tweet out or say run fast every day, I'm not saying run at a stimulating level of high intensity beyond your capacity every day. If you've rehearsed and practiced, yeah, it makes sense to run fast every day because it's neurological and speeds and neurological, so it's skill acquisition, it's motor learning. You walk every day, right? We we walk up flights of stairs every day. And you're like, oh my gosh, I'm overtraining. I'm walking up. I'm having resistance with stairs. Like, no, it's not the case. It's like just a couple retains the motor skill, and that's really what we're 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 looking at with these innovative ways of, all right, we have these metabolic adaptations we seek to work. Uh, and adjust over time. But also these really good coaches like John McDonald at Arkansas understood there's also these neurological uh, adaptations that we need to seek to enhance and stabilize over time as well. And his famous lift weights and then go for an eight mile steady run is a brilliant solution to how do I get people to strength train, increase robustness of muscle tissue, increase robustness of the musculoskeletal apparatus, neuromuscular, um, you know, high threshold, low threshold motor outputs, all that kind of signaling, but not do it in a way that's going to blunt the response to that training. And we know if you strength train and then do endurance work, it's a much better enzymatic signaling uh, sequence than endurance work than straight training because of mTOR, right? So brilliant, brilliant solution. And he said, endurance work, you can get the metabolic stimulus in endurance work that you want in a more fatigued state. We know this from um, studies on uh, different fatigue time horizons and fatigue latency in different types of work. And endurance work or this metabolic work can be, uh, the benefits of it can be uh, actualized at a really high capacity in already a pre-fatigue condition. Yeah, you know, the, the, uh, the McDonald lift and go run is again another if you're looking at an innovative approaches and you outlined some of the science there but it's 
it's a great way because you're getting the the most bang for your buck out of the neural strength demand work. But then you also get this nice aerobic stimulus on an easy day because you've just fatigued a bunch of your muscle fibers. Um, and then you're going for a, a steady run while in this weird, strange fatigue. And what I would do is I would suggest anybody, anybody just try this if you're a coach. Go lift some weights. You know, go do some squats or maybe even some bench press, whatever you want to do. Just go lift weights for 20 minutes, you know, whatever, whatever it is. But it's got to be, you know, something beyond just like an easy circuit or body weight circuit. Go lift some weights and then immediately go out the door and start running. And just your normal easy pace, go run seven minute pace. You will feel entirely different. Things will burn that you're just like, what? why are my arms or shoulders burning? Like they're not, what? This is weird. I'm running. I barely use my arms. Like what? Well, they just swing back and forth on this pendulum, but you're going to feel that. And that's a great indicator again, that you're shifting the muscle fiber like usage, you're shifting the fatigue pattern, and then you're going out and running, which a kind of loosens you up eventually. And you have to figure it out but also shifts that adaptation and the, the muscles that you will use during the run, the fibers that will be recruited and the, um, the fatigue that will have to be cleared and dissipated, all that good stuff. So it, 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 it balances out as this great training stimulus. And again, from guys, from friends who trained at Arkansas while McDonald was there, what's wonderful about this is you'd eventually adapt to it and that steady run, as you got, you know, shook out the the weight stuff, you would um, you would get pretty dang fast, and you'd get this nice aerobic stimulus again. If we look at it, if you looked at the total time spent training, it might just be an hour steady run, but then you've got this whole weight session just before you're spending a long time doing quality or solid work. Yeah. And the nice thing is you're, you're also obeying kind of the order of operations neurologically of doing the most neurally demanding thing in the freshest state possible. And then the least neurally demanding thing in a, um, the more fatigued state. O oftentimes we invert that in distance running because we think, Oh, the run is the most important thing, but the run is just a training exercise is training activity as lifting weights, as speed work is, as plyometrics are, as, um, you know, uh, hurdle mobility is. Like it, when we step back and we think in the Bondarchuk um, uh, taxonomy of training, you have the competitive exercise, which is the, th the exact thing you're training for, the exact joint angles, the exact muscle firing, the exact stuff. So for us, it's really simple. Your race specific event is the competitive exercise. Any rep, done if you're training for two miles, 5k, 10k, a marathon, whatever, that's competitive exercise. Then you start to go deviating down the ladder, right? You have what he calls the um, specific developmental exercise where those have this pretty similar physiological and neurological um, requirements. So that might be kind of, you know, a couple paces off for us runners, that might be a couple paces off your event specific activity. So maybe one or two paces slower, 
one or two paces, uh, you know, paces when I say that event faster. So if you're a 5k runner, that'd probably be 5k, 15 or 10k and 15k pace work. And also be 3k and 1500 meter pace work. Then you also, so then we get less specific and you have specific preparation activities, which again, shares very similar uh, physiological demands, uh, but not as much the neurological demands. So this might be for that 5k runner marathon pace work, or it also, uh, you know, might be um, half marathon pace work. Maybe not so much 800 meter, 4 meter pace work, uh, because again, it doesn't share the same physiology and it doesn't necessarily share the same neurological demands. And then you have general preparation exercises. General means they help in a very general, non-specific way. And this could be anywhere from, yeah, your speed work, your very, very fast stuff, 400 meter pace and faster, you know, and your, you know, gross strength work or basic strength work, bench press, deadlift, squats, these, these full range of motion activities that recruit as much muscle tissue as possible to prepare the neurological system and the uh, mobility and flexibility to move through fuller joint ranges of motion, but also be ready to uh, elevate the ability of the competitive exercise. And so when you go through this and you, you step back as a coach and you think of, all right, how close is this to, you know, in this concept of specificity and transfer, how close or far away are these activities from the competitive exercise? It gives it a different light. So go back to that John McDonald example, strength training, general preparation exercise, steady run. That's one step above a general preparation activity because it's not really race pace. It's not close to race pace for John McDonald's 1500 meters, you know, 5k runners. It's more in that kind of steady state, 15k half marathon type pace. So that would be classified as a um, specific preparation exercise. So they're just two preparation exercises, you know, uh, mashed together and general then specific. It makes perfect sense when you look through that lens. When you kind of look through just the, how does this impact energy systems, feeling substrate, physiology only lens, it's kind of confusing. But this is why as coaches, we need to do the hard work to go through an interdisciplinary approach and get a better map and a better lens to look through so we can better interpret why things like this work and why they're so important and why they can really level you up if you apply them uh, intelligently, consistently, and correctly. Yeah, you know, I, I think we've talked about this a lot, but like we're all biased by the lens that we grow up or are used to seeing things through, which makes sense, right? So you talk to a, a distance coach with a, a physiology background, they're going to see through that. If you talk to a strength coach, they're going to tell you this other thing over here is the most important thing. If you talk to a physical therapist, they're going to tell you about this, that is the most important thing. But as a coach, your job, your quest is to be able to understand and see the world through a bunch of different lenses so that you know and can see what you're trying to do, get out of it, right? So I can, I can put my strength training hat on. I can put my biomechanics hat on. And I can also take them off, you know? So I'll give you an example. Um, sprint coaches are obsessed with making sure that they're not ingrading bad biomechanics habits. Yes, they are. 
which is important. And rightfully so for that that event group. Yes. But if we if we only had that mindset in in distance running, we wouldn't be able to do the very select few run like go to the well, see God workouts where I don't give a I don't care if their biomechanics are are breaking down because I want them to like go to the point of like utter and complete exhaustion. So we need to step out of that lens in that moment because we're saying, you know what? The physiological and psychological of just beating down is what is needed. We'll worry about this biomechanical stuff later. And But other workouts, I need to put on that biomechanical lens and be like, oh, you know what? We're not looking that great here. Like we're, we should cut this workout. We should cut these intervals or minimize it or give them a longer break because we're seeing breakdown right here. So it's this ability to know and have these multiple hats or multiple lenses that you can put on to see the world through um, so you don't get stuck and can have a little more flexibility to get some of this uh, this innovative kind of training to tackle, you know, difficult problems instead of sticking with just, you know, the the normal route or the this is what we've always done route. Yeah, endurance coaches, this is why I love being an endurance coach, is because we do have to kind of be a jack of all trades. We have yes. to understand the whole spectrum because our activity, our competitive competition exists throughout the entire spectrum of qualities. You need endurance. Yes. You need power. Yes. You need speed. Yes. You need strength. Yes. Coordination. Yes. Suppleness. Yes. <laughs> it's not like throwing or, you know, short sprints or, you know, high jump or what have you, where it's a very concrete, finite, you know, uh, s- series of skills you need to improve, to be good. It's, in distance running, you know, we're a lot like soccer players, basketball players, you know, they have a lot of stop and start, but they're going for a long time. But we have to have a lot of general qualities, really robust to then make the more specific. And then that all factor into what our specific quality is, which is to endure going a, a the fastest pace possible for the duration of the competitive event. And then figuring out some way to actually accelerate and give a final spurt at the end versus in all the spring events, right? It's a mitigating deceleration activity. There's no speeding up in a spring event. You only slow down. It's a matter of how much do you slow down. So yet in distance running world, we do speed up in the final stages of our race. And that's a very difficult and different uh, competitive problem to be solved. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just, it, it is. And I think that's where it is. Again, it's like, if you're listening to this podcast, hopefully, you know, like the nuance that we try to bring and the history and all that. And part of going through these kind of this Joe Newton, this, you know, John McDonald, these other coaches, Canova, yeah. Canova is like, you are the Jack of all trades. Like, that is it. Like, you need to understand it. You need to understand the psychology, the physiology, the biomechanics, the uh, the neural stuff, the motor learning stuff. Like, you are the master generalist who has to have 
a certain degree of expertise on all of these things. And then know how to apply it individually to the individual athlete you're working with. Like I had this conversation yesterday with my wife who, you know, I've talked about a lot on this podcast. She's coming back. She's trying to get ready to be competitive at a national class level at uh, USA Cross in July or excuse me, in January in um, San Diego over, I believe it's 10K, right? And, you know, she's gone to several U.S. championships, made an international cross-country team, you know, took some time away, got injured, got all sick, all this kind of stuff. And now is doing the hardest thing was trying to go back up the mountain, so to speak. And she's like, I wish we had more days and or you know more time in my training cycle but because of work we're forced to be on seven day cycles right for her and so i was telling her well the order of operations of where you're at is that's the beauty of periodization and the beauty of what we know that needs to happen and how important it is so like her rhythm weekly rhythm is this double run on monday with an explosive plyometric sequence and then a light lift that's that's the full meal and we're trying to graduate her to that What's been happening is, you know, it's all about layering, right? We've normalized the double run. We've normalized the 20-minute the plyometric session. But she's working full 10-hour day that day. And getting to that light lift at the very end, it's kind of come see, come saw. Some days it makes sense, some days it doesn't. But because we know she does have two other lift sessions in a week, a heavy lift and a dynamic lift, that one's the least important session. And so it's always a cost-benefit analysis. Will this make her fatigued or will this give her like the training stimulus we want? And nine times, you know, so far uh, in the last couple of weeks, it's just been like, don't do it. Don't do it. You're just not adapted. You're not ready to handle that. That's going to be too much stress. The following day is an easy day of an easy run with like six times eight strides at 3K to 1500 meter speed. Then Wednesday's her, what we call her kind of short system workout where she works on 3K, 15, 800-meter speeds. That is then complemented in the afternoon after several hours of recovery of food and nutrition with a heavy lift where she's going to PR in the bench. She's going to PR in trap bar deadlift. She's going to PR in squats. And always the same load, right? Four times five on all those things. But the last uh, or middle set of five is at a PR weight. Then the next day is a... Another double run with a retentive, what we call skills and drills session. So the goal is to re- retain qualities that we are have worked on. And that also is some weeks yes, some weeks no, depending on how she's feeling. Because we, we we're not trying to get a stimulus there. We're just trying to, hey, 20 minutes of working on footwork, stride mechanics, going through wickets. That's essentially what the drill is, just to retain qualities. But again, it's after work. There's a lot of variables at play there. Friday's athlete's choice. You can take it as a restorative run day, completely off. Your call. Saturday is her longer uh, interval day or longer repetition days. We're working on more 5K to 10K pace work with some threshold stuff complemented. So that's a longer, more denser session. Uh, not as fast, but not as much recovery. And then that's where she has her dynamic lift session, which is kettlebell training with her kettlebell strength coach. And then Sunday is the classic, you know, uh, restorative long run for her because she's very lowly sensitive to that. And actually it builds her back up to go for about, you know, an hour and 45 minutes at just like easy clip for her. It kind of, you know, for me, that type of activity just wears me out, but for her, it builds her back up and that's her week. And she wishes she knows how important some of these ancillary stuff are, but we always have to, um, you know, 
contrast that with reality, which is like, how do you feel right now? Like, is actually doing this type of work going to help get the training stimulus we want without as much of a penalty, uh, recovery penalty as we want? Or is it going to like put you further and further under that kind of alarm resistance state in the supercompensation cycle and then impact adversely one or two days later, this primary workout, which is whether, you know, your track session of 3k pace and down or your track session of 5k pace up and up. And that's, that's the balance that's so key and why sometimes, right, people who have a very uh, limited concept of training, like the 80-20 evangelicus, right, the polarized training evangelicus, were like, you got to go really hard and then really easy. And if it doesn't look like that, you're wrong. And it's like, no, <laughs> it may be, may not, may, what may be easy to me may not be easy to you because of how we've accommodated and been trained. And that's where we have to understand as the distance coach in heavy training or hard training, training is supposed to be hard. I remind my wife of this all the time. The foundational period and specific period that we use, that Canova uses, Kenyans call it hard training. It's hard training. You go hard, 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 hard. Then the performance period or peaking period is what they call reduced training. Not as hard. It's less hard. It's reduced. <laughs> and it's a simple, beautiful way to think about it. But you got to train hard. And then you got to reduce the difficulty of training. Again, the hard, easy principle at a macro scale. All right. So I think that's a great place to summarize and leave it because it, it really is. These these kind of rules of thumb, these principles um, can be applied in a number of different ways, but it's like looking at the micro, looking at it from the macro, understanding that you are a generalist and your job is to become a master at that generalism so that you can see how to apply these different lenses or these different mindsets to your training. And I think, you know, that's what we see again so clearly in these master coaches who take the time, like a Joe Newton, for example, we've been talking a lot about him. If you read his interviews um, from a couple of years ago, obviously before he passed, you see like the influence of Lydiard who stayed with them, the influence of Co, the influence of Joe V Hill, these absolute legends in the sport and how he took what these, you know, great coaches, you know, used, utilized, and then applied that in his own particular situation to his own population and made it his own. Well, you know, keeping kind of the the tried and true principles that worked so <laughs> get innovative don't just fall for the the standard start looking at things in a slightly different way you're not getting away from the basics you're just figuring out what works in the environment you're in and how to make it you know the most optimal that it can be yeah the key i think steve is as a journalist you're always humble you're humble in that you know there's a lot you don't know. And when you see something that's contrary to what you think is a rock solid, you know, concrete rule of thumb, and you see someone doing it and applying it successfully or someone saying that, as a, a humble generalist, you have to step back and go, huh, why does that work? Why could that work? Does it work? And this is, you know, having that open mindset, 
having a continuous learning approach means you're ultimately very humble all the time because you're constantly having to reconcile ways you might have done something that worked but might not work as well as other way methods that could work better. And this is where, again, being and searching for knowledge and on that journey, on that path, like what I call a seeker. And the whole reason we create the scholar program and the whole reason we have a clubhouse for all, all the scholars to get together is so that we can see these different approaches and different paths people take because of constraints in their environment, constraints in, um, you know, different ex access to different things. Might not have hills, we have stairs. Might not have weights, uh, but we have medicine balls or, you know, bags of rice, whatever, bags of sacks of potatoes. We might not have these traditional tools and methods, but we found out a way to get the stimulus we want to create the improvement we needed so that people could then perform at the level they're capable of. And this is my message always to everyone is like, dare to be great. There's a lot of mediocrity out there these days. And a lot of people will try to like tear you down and they will, you know, we call them haters and they will tell you, no, you can't do it. You know, it's not so much because they're trying to make it so that you can't succeed. It's because if you do and become great, it then forces them to reconcile and ask, well, why am I not great? You know, well, and people who are really insecure in those regards don't want other people to elevate and level up. But that is what we as coaches are all about all the time is understanding Humans are really powerful creatures. There's a lot of untapped power in any of us. We're highly adaptable. We're highly survivable. You know, we're very strong if trained to be strong. And that's the goal, right? I mean, how many times have Steve and I worked with freshmen or, you know, pros straight out of college who didn't have a glimmer of hope, who people might call platypuses and really just, what are you doing? You don't know. But then they, they graduated to become a, you know, conference score, you know, uh, national class caliber, consistent, uh, producing athlete. Like it's beautiful to watch, but at the same time too, we got to remember as coaches, like that is the charge is why we have to always keep an open mindset and go, there might be something else here, or there might be something I don't know that I then can apply because just as we have to vary the stimulus to continue the growth of the athlete, we have to vary, vary the stimulus and vary the education and understanding of the coach to grow them as a practitioner. You know, I think we'll end it with this is you just never know, right? You never know what someone's capable of, what someone can become. And the worst thing we can do as coaches is kind of label, categorize, and then just leave it be. And we've all seen examples of people you know, perform, grow beyond what we could have predicted. So leave that possibility open. That's what it's all about. So thank you everybody for listening. We hope you enjoyed this. Check out the Running Scholar Program. Be a part of the, the clubhouse. All of those good things. And until next time, we will see you soon. <laughs>